Amen, friends. If you have a Bible with this morning, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have one and you want to borrow one, there are some under that window over by the office. You're welcome to grab one. Uh, Praise the Lord for technology. Also, most of us have Bible access on our phones even these days. Matthew chapter 6. We are in the gospel of Matthew together as a church, working slowly through this gospel. Uh, And last week, we looked at the first half of Matthew chapter 6. This is in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, one of Jesus' most famous sermons and one of the most prolonged pieces of direct teaching from Jesus that we have. We've been seeing how Jesus is calling for a new kind of life, a new kind of righteousness in light of the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Last week, we talked about the aim of that righteousness, and we saw through these contrasting pictures of those who are practicing their righteousness in public in order to be seen by others versus someone who is practicing righteousness in private in order to be seen by the Lord who sees in secret, we saw that the true aim of righteousness ought to be to please our Heavenly Father. We saw over and over the language of reward. And if we notice, as we move into the second half of Matthew, even starting in verse 19 with the language of treasure, Jesus is continuing this concept or this idea of reward, of what motivates us towards a certain kind of living. We also see, as we go through this text, the same kind of two paths that Jesus put up. Last time it was this difference between whether you're aiming to please others or aiming to please God. And now we have these contrasting pictures in verses 19 to 24 of treasure in heaven or on earth, or seeking to have light or darkness inside of us, or seeking to serve the master of God or the master of money. This means that Jesus as he moves through this teaching, is continuing to say kind of what he's already said, just apply it in different ways and think about it in different aspects. Jesus is continuing to teach about this new life in the reality of the kingdom, but now he's drawing his attention away from what we might call vertical piety or God and me, and he's turning his attention more to what we might call horizontal piety or God or excuse me, me and the world around me in light of God. Jesus turns his attention away from these practices of religion, like prayer and fasting and almsgiving, and to the issue of possessions, things we have, things we need, those kind of things. So he's turning his attention. I think this is an important move for Jesus to make, an important move for us to think about, because I think in light of last week, it can be easy for us to think, that righteousness practiced merely between me and God is relatively easy. This is the kind of ivory tower syndrome, right? You, you hear someone write about something or talk about something, and maybe they're an academic in an institution, and it's like, well, you don't really live in real life. Or maybe they're a monk in a monastery, and you're like, yeah, that's easy when you're in a monastery, but not as easy when you go and work a job day in and day out. I live in the real world, and what does Jesus have to say about that? And I think this shift to the horizontal, to looking at us as we relate to the world, and particularly through the lens of possessions, is helpful in answering this concern. Jesus is indeed concerned with the real world, how we live in a world where we actually possess stuff and require stuff to live and survive. 
His goal is to teach us how to live in this real world in light of the kingdom of heaven, in light of this new reality that is broken through in Jesus. We've seen him already preach the gospel of the kingdom. His message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This new reality has come and you ought to live differently in light of that. We're going to walk through the text. We're going to finish the whole second half of Matthew chapter 6. As we go through the text, we're not going to go through it linearly, but we're going to look at a couple patterns that we see. You'll notice as we read through the text in just a moment that Jesus says over and over, do not. There's four do nots that he gives. Do not. Three of them are kind of the same, and one of them is slightly different, but they're related. We're going to think about how that is. He starts off with some do nots, and then he has... But do, but, but do this, but do this instead. And we're going to look at that. What does he call for instead? And the heart of what he calls for, we're, we're going to spend the majority of the time talking about what we ought to do, is he calls for us to look. He calls for us to pay attention to something. And we're going to look at that today. So in light of that, let me pray for us one more time and ask God's help. And then we're going to read Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we read this text and as we think through this teaching of Jesus, that you would help us, that you would help give us understanding, help us see this reality that Jesus paints, that he sees so clearly, but that is so clouded for us many times. I pray that you would do the work that only you can do through the power of your spirit by your word to open our eyes to what you have really done, the reality behind what we see. I pray that you would help us look as Jesus commands. And I pray that you, out of that looking and out of that beholding, would arise a life that is settled and peaceful in trusting you as our good Father. So I pray that you would accomplish what only you can do through the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Amen. Amen. I hope as we read through that you noticed Jesus's do nots, right? Just to point us, point us to them. Notice verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Or verse 25. Verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Or verse uh, 31. Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Or verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. All of these do nots are tied together. And yet, if we think about them, there's a couple that are do not be, do not be anxious. And there's one that's do not do, right? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. The question then that I have for us to consider is how is doing connected with being? What is the connection between do not store up treasures on earth and do not be anxious? We need to answer that question if we're going to understand what Jesus is getting at. If you look at verse 25, you'll notice, do not be anxious about your life is preceded by the words, therefore I tell you. In other words, Jesus is making an argument Drawing a conclusion, and we see that therefore, and we look up above it to say, what is, he, what is he talking from? And verse 24 precedes that. No one can serve two masters, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. It's casting us, in other words, into what we see in verses 19 to 25, which is these contrasts between earth and heaven, between light and darkness, between serving the master, God as master, and serving Money as master. Anxiety in verse 25, do not be anxious, flows, in other words, from devotion. He will, he will despise the one, or he will be devoted to the one, excuse me, and despise the other. Verses 19 to 24 describe a heart that's torn in devotion between two paths. Storing up treasure on earth, storing up treasure in heaven. Torn between heaven and earth, the heart cannot go multiple directions. We might be tempted to conclude that maybe the anxiety that results is because of that divided heart nature. In other words, if we just pick one or the other, we'll be less anxious. So does that work? If we just serve money or we just serve mammon, you might have a footnote in your Bible by that word money in verse 24. And if you look down at that footnote, it might say something like mine does in the ESV, the Greek word mammon, a Semitic word for money or possessions. So think more broadly than just dollar bills, right? Money, possessions, what we have, our possessions. If we serve those, does that lead to less anxiety? Does that lead to happiness? If we're not split, Anybody ever tempted like that? Like, man, I feel this kind of push and pull on following Christ or pursuing the things of the world. And maybe if I just gave in, I would feel better. The preacher in Ecclesiastes teaches us that that is a dumb idea. 
we studied through as a church the book of Ecclesiastes last year, and I want to remind us what we saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 to 12. Listen to what the preacher says. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. In other words, the preacher is saying that this love of money will never be satisfied because as resources increase, so does needs. As resources increase, so does anxiety over those resources and what will happen to them. It's a vicious cycle that leads to no sleep. Anxiety springs from this. Anxiety springs from a heart that is devoted to what the ESV says money, but I think mammon is a better word for us to capture more inclusively what it means. A heart that's devoted towards mammon. A heart that's devoted, in other words, towards possessions. The way I want to say it for us today is that anxiety springs from a heart that's possessed by possessions. It's possessed as in the idea of this is what drives me, this is what controls me, this is what I'm all about. Giving us ourselves fully to that will not lead to happiness, but will lead to much, much anxiety, much, much suffering. Why would someone seek to be devoted to possessions? Why would someone lay up treasures on earth? Why are we tempted to do that? We might think like, well, I just, I just like stuff, and that's true. But if we look kind of deeper below in the motivations, I think what we will find all the way at the bottom is that the desire for possessions, the devotion to mammon that springs up in us, is a desire to control the future. It's a desire to control the future. What I mean by that is we could take greed, for example, and look at and say, I just want more stuff. And the idea is that if I have more stuff in the future, I will be happier. In the future, I will enjoy the stuff. There's a parable Jesus tells about a man whose barns were full and then he built bigger barns and then he died that night and Jesus called him a fool. But his goal was to have this stuff to be able to enjoy, to bring future happiness and satisfaction. I think that's probably what's behind Jesus' admonition, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Greedily storing up stuff to try to secure future happiness. But maybe we're a little bit better than that, and maybe we're not totally greedy for stuff. Maybe instead our anxieties for possessions or the way possessions possess us is more about the fear of the future. I think that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 25, right? When he says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. I don't think he was primarily talking about like being anxious as to whether you could go to the five-star restaurant or had to settle for the four-star restaurant. I think he was talking more about being anxious about like, will you actually have anything to eat tonight or not? He's talking about survival and sustenance anxiety. And that kind of anxious striving that that breeds is the other side of the coin of greed because it's still a desire to secure the future. It's just the idea instead of if I have more stuff, I will be happy. It's the idea of if I have enough stuff, 
I will be safe. If I have enough stuff, I will be secure. It's looking to try to secure survival for the future. And it breeds the same kind of anxiety that Jesus is here condemning. That Jesus is here calling his disciples not to have. Both greed and this kind of anxious striving spring from a worldview that says what is here is all there is. That this world is all there is. That securing my future in this world is my sole means of being sure that I will be one day happy. The problem with that is that we live in a world where we can't control the future. It's pretty obvious for all of us. There is no amount of anxious striving that would have led me to understand that gas is one day going to be almost $5. There's no control over it. There's no control over whether it skyrockets to $10. There's nothing that I can really realistically do to control that future. And that could within me breed a level of anxiety. That could within me cause me to be anxious in the way that Jesus is calling us not to be anxious. The reality that we cannot control the future produces in us anxiety. We see, when we look at reality rightly, that the things we store up, treasures on earth, will ultimately be eaten by moths or rust or taken by thieves. We see that there's no amount of anxious striving that we can do, like he says in verse 27, to add a single moment to your own life. We see that we are finite. As Ecclesiastes says in chapter 5, verse 15, a little bit further from what we read. As he, came in, or as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. The reality is that time devours everything. And if we look at this reality and we're possessed by possessions, we're going to be terrified understandably and you should be because if possessions are where your hope is you're going to lose them and it's right to be terrified about that what this reveals is not that it's dumb to try to plan for the future but that there's a problem that arises in our hearts and that problem is being possessed by possessions it's a heart problem that jesus describes in verse 21 As where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But notice what Jesus does. We talked about this last week, if you were here as well. Jesus addresses a heart problem by prescribing action. Do this. Not by saying feel differently, but by saying do differently. Because our heart is anchored in our doing, our heart follows where our treasure is. And we do things to accumulate that treasure. Jesus describes action to reorient our heart. He does say don't feel, don't be anxious. But he doesn't just leave it there. And that's so much more helpful because it would be totally unhelpful in my mind, for me at least, if Jesus just said, just don't be anxious. I'd be like, well, okay, now I'm anxious. But Jesus prescribes action. This is a pattern that we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount already. Action, redemptive action taken in faith, recalibrates, reorients our hearts. Doing differently changes where our treasure lies. That's what Jesus is calling 
us to do. He's saying, do not be possessed by your possessions. That's the first thing. We must not be possessed by our possessions. But instead, he prescribes these actions in verse 20 and verse 33. Look with me at verse 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And notice in verse 33, we have the same thing. Verse 33, he gets done saying in verse 31, do not be anxious. And then he gives a reason for the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. And then in verse 33, here's his but. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Lay up treasure in heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. These are actions Jesus is calling his people to do. These are actions that flow from a heart that is motivated by something other than accumulating treasures on earth. Something other than securing the future. They're actions also that reorient the heart themselves. And the goal behind these actions, I think they're joined together. The goal behind laying up treasures in heaven and behind seeking first the kingdom of God is about single-minded devotion to God. He's calling for this single-minded devotion to God that can only come about by living in light of a new reality. And that's what he's trying to draw attention to, I believe, is this, this new reality that because the kingdom of heaven has come, we must not be possessed by possessions seeking to secure our future, but we must be possessed by the kingdom of heaven, so to speak, seeking to live in light of the reality of the future that God has already secured for us. We're looking to live in light of this kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says, do this. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. Lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. But he doesn't just leave us there and say, do these things, go and be well. He calls us to pay attention to reality. Because one of the things that we can, one of the ways we can sometimes think about this is that Jesus is just kind of a hippie. And he's like, especially if we read verse 34, Verse 34, right? Do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That could be needle pointed on a pillow and have nothing to do with Christianity. Right? If we think about it and we think the song, don't worry, be happy, comes into our head. And that is not what Jesus is calling us to do. He's not calling us to lay up treasures in heaven and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because we're ignoring all of this stuff. What he's calling us to do is look super closely at reality and see what is actually true. And then in light of that, lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven and seek his kingdom. He's calling us to be realistic and to look closer. I want to list four things he wants us to look at. Four things he wants us to look at. We've already hinted at them. He wants us to look, first of all, at our finitude. He wants you to face the fact that you are finite. Verse 19, moth, rust, thieves, destroy your stuff. It will one day be destroyed. Verse 27, no amount of worrying will add a single moment, a single hour to your span of life. 
verse 34, tomorrow's going to have trouble and there's nothing you can do about it. Jesus wants you to look at that reality very clearly because one of the easiest ways to become possessed by your possessions is to self-medicate your anxiety about tomorrow with stuff today. Right? To buy, to spend, to do things more, to try to secure your happiness now as a way of ignoring the reality that none of this stuff will actually work. That's why I loved going through with Ecclesiastes together. Because the preacher just lays that out and he says, that doesn't work. Don't be silly. And the preacher is Solomon. The one who was able to do that. Who could have whatever he wanted. And he said, you know what guys, I've been down this path. It doesn't work. It eventually fades. You have to face the reality of your own finitude. Which includes the reality that one day you will die. And none of your stuff will matter. And if you don't face that, then you're going to remain blind to the truth. Because that's the truth. He wants you to face that you are finite. He wants you to see, secondly, how high the stakes are. It's not like this is kind of like a nice to have, like maybe we we ought to be a little bit less materialistic, and I hope we can someday. No, this is life or death. This is so, so drastically important. Look what he says. In verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? That's not a warning that says, you know, guys, it's probably pretty good if you if you maybe just do this. That's like, no, this is life or death. This is light or darkness. This is a soul that's alive or a soul that's dead. For the disciples of Jesus, the stakes are incredibly high. Our heart, as we've seen in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Our heart follows our treasure. And if our treasure is on earth, then our heart will not be directed towards heaven. If we are possessed by our possessions, then it is not possible to serve God. And Jesus is speaking here to his disciples and saying, this is what it looks like to be faithful to the Father. The stakes are incredibly high. There is no neutral ground. You cannot split your heart. You cannot split your time, your focus, your attention, your hope for the future. On like, you know, 30% possessions and like 70% the kingdom of heaven. It's all or nothing. The stakes are incredibly high. You need to face that you are finite. and You need to see that the stakes are incredibly high. The third thing I think he wants us to see is that our aim ought to be to be fully human. So this is not an aim to be some kind of super spiritual quasi-demi person. This is, not, this is not an aim to be a super Christian. This is an aim to be a normal Christian who is a full human. Jesus himself came bringing the kingdom of heaven to restore true humanity. Here's where I see that. Look at verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. This is the part I want you to see. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What Jesus is saying is, ought you not do more than just living to live? Ought you not desire more than just the basic sustenance that keeps you alive? 
to do so, to live only to live, is subhuman. And I don't say that in any way to put down someone who has to live solely for sustenance. And Jesus does not either. Because remember, Jesus was not living a super comfortable life with a long retirement plan. Jesus was living in the shadow of the cross day by day, not knowing whether he'd have anything to eat. So he's not speaking here as someone from the West, like me, who doesn't know what it's like to not have enough money to feed my family. He's speaking as someone who knows exactly what that's like. And he's saying, living that way solely is not how you ought to live. It's not how we were created to live, and therefore it's subhuman. It's not being fully human as God has called us to be. Jesus is saying that in the context of what will be immense deprivation and suffering, how much worse is it when we who have been blessed with much live that way? Living only to live. And that might be whether it's actually, like literally, we're just thinking about what our next meal. But I think it can be extended to anything where we look at and make the point of life what we have. So maybe it's living for the next Marvel movie to be released. I tell you, I'm looking forward to Thor, Love, and Thunder. But if I'm living for that, how pathetic is that? How sad is that? It's not living as we were created to be full humans in the image of God, living in light of the kingdom of heaven. It's sad. Jesus does not want us to do that. He wants us to aim to be fully human. He wants us to be more than mere pagans. Verse 32. What does he say? For the Gentiles, those are pagans, the Gentiles, those who don't know Yahweh, the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. Don't be like the Gentiles in how you seek. Don't be like everyone else, part of broken humanity that totally suppresses the knowledge of God. Right, We read that text in Romans for our call to confession today. The idea being that what our problem is, what the problem with humanity is that needs to be restored is not that God is unknown, but that God is known and humanity turns away. Suppresses the truth, exchanges it for a lie. And what Jesus is calling us to do is look closer at the truth. See the reality. Stop feeding ourselves these lies. And in doing that, learn to be fully human. Not a super spiritual cosmic being, but just be what we were created to be as men and women made in his image. So we've had to face that we are finite. We have to see how high the stakes are. We have to aim to be fully human. And the last one, we have to consider the father's good and generous care. This is what he spends the most time on, right? Look at the birds. Look at the lilies. Consider the Father's good and generous care. The Father who knows what you need and is willing to give. Jesus is calling us to see all of the things around us in light of what's really true. Which is that God sustains all these things. It is easy for me to look at the giant silver maple that we have in our front yard and just say, this is just there. Right? It just The tree magically keeps... Sprouting leaves, and then they fall in the the fall, and the next spring there's leaves and buds and those kind of things. And to just take it for granted. What Jesus is asking us to do is to take a moment and not take that for granted, but recognize that it's God himself who sustains, and in his words, clothes, 
those plants. It's God himself. I have a little robin comes and makes a nest under our deck. And I, I got to see, it was kind of cool this year to see that robin fly up with, with a worm and like feeding her young. And it's easy for me to just say, wow, isn't nature amazing? Right? And just totally neglect the fact that that's God feeding those little birds. That that's God caring for them. And Jesus makes an argument from the lesser to the greater and says, if God cares for those birds that much, and if God cares for those plants that much, how much more does he care for you? Oh, you of little faith. I think this is particularly important for us as Christians, as those relatively, I think, secure in the West, as having more possessions than a majority of the world even combined, to take to heart. Because I think we face a particular danger in our context. Often the church flourishes better under the danger of persecution than the church does under the danger of prosperity. And when we are in a stage of prosperity where we don't know this kind of need, it's easy for us not to be anxious, not because we're looking and considering the birds and the lilies, but because we're looking and considering our bank account. And we say, there's enough in there, so I don't have any reason to be anxious. Or if we feel a little anxiety, how many of us are more inclined to go and balance our checkbook than we are to take a walk in the woods? I am. You can see this in your own heart if something happens unexpectedly and suddenly things get a little tighter and you feel that little twinge. I noticed it this year. We tried to do our, I have to do our our taxes myself and and all that kind of stuff because I'm considered self-employed and I, I tried to calculate everything and I like doing that kind of stuff, but I made some calculation errors this year and we ended up owing more than I thought we would. We've been very well taken care of, so we weren't in any way impoverished or at risk. But I feel that anxiety, like we have less in the bank account than I thought we did, and, and we, have, we can't maybe have to make some hard decisions about what we're going to do now or prioritize. And feeling that anxiety tells me that it's not that I am trusting in the Father's good care, but that I'm trusting more in my bank account. How easy it is to do that, friends. It is incredibly easy. We must... Do what Jesus is calling us to do. In the midst of a recession, in the midst of inflation, in the midst of much financial uncertainty, what Jesus is calling us to do is become bird watchers and botanists. Become those who take walks in the woods and spend time considering God's good care for his creation. And then out of that, pull the lesson that God cares for you and me even much more. The goal that Jesus is calling us towards is the goal of trust. That's why he says in verse 30, Oh, you of little faith. He's calling his people to trust that this is true rather than live lives steeped in anxiety. Out of this then flows the action of laying up treasures in heaven and of seeking first the kingdom of God. And all those things look like is all the stuff that Jesus has already talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Take, for example, the call to love your enemies. Jesus calls his disciples to love their enemies. That is impossible to do if you are possessed by your possessions because your enemies will take your stuff. 
And how on earth can you love them then if your heart is bent on your stuff and now your enemies have exposed how insecure your future is? Jesus calls us to trust in the Father and to love our enemies. This is the kind of trust, this is the kind of text that got guys like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Helmut Tillichy through Nazi Germany in World War II. This is the kind of on-the-ground faith that they exercised because Jesus himself believed these things and he was on his way to the cross. And so it must be true and it must work for us too. That's what they concluded. And that's what we ought to conclude as well. Jesus is calling us not to be possessed by our possessions, but to be possessed by the kingdom of heaven. And what that means is that we must see true reality and we must live in light of it. You see, if this isn't real, then the father doesn't actually care for us. If, if God is not sustaining the tree in our front yard, then it's just a tree and all this is in vain. If God is not actually feeding the robin under our deck, then it's just a robin. It's just natural. None of this matters. And what you ought to do instead is seek to get as much stuff as you can before it's too late. If this is not true, that's what you ought to do. And so the only way that this is wise is if the kingdom of heaven has indeed come. The only way that this is wise is if this is indeed true. And we know from God's true word and from the testimony of his son Jesus and from the testimony of countless witnesses throughout the generations that the kingdom of heaven has indeed drawn near in Christ Jesus and that this is indeed true and therefore this is how we ought to live. Jesus is inviting us to live in light of this new reality, to live in light of this new world that's breaking in. He's inviting us to do that in a way that receives this as the truth, not in a way that achieves it as the truth. Jesus starts off his sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, For why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The reality is that those who are poor in spirit, you and me who struggle with anxiety and who seek to have our heart undivided towards God, but who often don't have hearts undivided, you and me, the poor in spirit, who confess that poverty of spirit and come to Christ, what do we receive? We receive the kingdom of heaven. And all of these realities are true, that the Father cares for his people and that we can trust him because we possess the kingdom of heaven that is where our treasure is that is where our heart is and therefore the kingdom of heaven possesses us that's how it's meant to work that's the work that god does by his spirit let's pray and ask him for help Father, I thank you, first of all, for your good care, for all of creation around us. I thank you that we, that we have just right outside our own city, a beautiful state park full of examples of your kindness in clothing the plants better than Solomon was clothed and in preparing a feast for the birds and other animals and creeping things in that forest better than any kind of feast we could hope to prepare for ourselves. 
I pray that you would help us to see with eyes that are wide open the truth. To see this reality even though everything in culture conspires against it. And tells us that this is just a figment of our imagination. I pray that you would help us see this. And as we see it, I pray that you would center our hearts on it. That you would be our treasure and that you would cause our hearts to be singly devoted to you. I thank you for the joy that I know that brings. And I pray that you help us pursue it together. By the power of Jesus. Amen.